This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Hi, and welcome to episode 44 of the World Beyond War podcast. I'm Mark Elliott Stein, and today I'm excited to be talking with one of the most determined and tireless peace activists I know, David Hartsoe who was one of the original founders of World Beyond War in 2014, and who helped us kick off this podcast series in January 2019 when we celebrated this organization's fifth birthday with our debut episode. David Hartso is the author of a book, Waging Peace, that tells his incredible life story, which begins in the long ago year of 1960, when as a very young person, he personally encountered, met, or protested alongside Martin Luther King, Ralph Abernathy, A.J. Must, and Bayard Rustin, among others. As the book describes, young David followed this with peace delegations and journeys to Cuba, Venezuela, Yugoslavia, and even the city of Berlin during the epic years of the building of the Berlin Wall. The philosophy of nonviolence has always been central to David's work, as it is to all of us at World Beyond War. And if you're listening to this episode in real time, you may even get a chance to catch David as one of the panelists for our upcoming anti-war film festival, Celebrating Stories of Nonviolence, in which he will speak with the South African peace activist, Ella Gandhi. Before we dive into all of these topics, though, I want to first say how fortunate we are to be able to speak with David today and how generous he is being with his time because David has been dealing with bone cancer a harsh disease that would take a toll on anyone. So David, first, I want to just sincerely thank you for being here. And I want to ask, how are you feeling today? Thank you, Mark. I'm very glad to be here. (laughs) Uh, I'm glad to have this opportunity to talk with you and a lot of other people out there that are listening. Um, Yeah, two years ago, or I guess it's two and a half years ago, I was... Uh, diagnosed with myelodysplastic syndrome, uh, which is bone cancer, that, so, that, bone and blood cancer. So, uh, uh, which means the, the bone marrow cannot uh, get uh, blood out to the, your body. <laughs> and uh, they, at that time, I said, well, I could uh, live only months. And uh, so I'm very happy to be alive. Uh, Actually, the end of last year was not a good year, not because of the bone cancer, but uh, I was uh, in four months, I was in the hospital four times. And Mm. uh, in December, uh, I'm told that uh, I could have died. Uh, And I had fluid on my heart and also lungs. And and what they say is I, I just wasn't making sense for about three days. So oh, wow. I'm very happy to be alive and be able to happy. I'm, I'm grateful to still be in this world to try to help create a world that our children and grandchildren and all, all people's children will have a chance to live and be a part of a world beyond war. Yes. Um, I, I am imagining that you are going through activities to, you know, deal with this disease that are new and unusual to you. So yet again in your life, a life of filled with adventure and discovery, I'm sure this is a very different type of challenge that you're dealing with. As a peace activist, 
what is it like for somebody with your philosophy of nonviolence, which is, of course, an overarching life philosophy? You know, there's so much more to nonviolence than simply not being violent, but it's an affirmation of life. And I'm just wondering what insights the peace movement has brought to your health crisis and what insights the health crisis has brought to your peace activism, if that makes any sense at all. Well, I mean, one of the reasons that I'm a peace activist is uh, I want uh, people all over the world to have a chance to live. <laughs> and, Hell yeah. Hell and, yeah. Not, and not get killed by you know, the madness to which we seem to be addicted. Yes. Uh, and a lot of the world seems to be addicted. Um, so and every life is, is really precious. And uh, including mine, <laughs> and so yes. so uh, I I'm uh, I'm grateful to be alive, as I said. And I, yesterday I spent four hours with Dan Ellsberg, and wow, uh, at, at ninety two <laughs> or ninety three. Wow. But, but, well, let's just say for, for anyone, because this podcast goes out to people all over the world, Daniel Ellsberg, the great whistleblower who released the Pentagon Papers and, and really you know changed his life in order to um, deliver this information about the U.S. activities in Vietnam. So, yes, tell us more. And, <laughs> and he risked, as you know, 115 years for exposing the uh, Pentagon first. In jail. That was his sentence? It was his possible sentence if, if uh, wow. if he'd not sent the plumbers in to, uh, to uh, get his, you know, his psychiatrist, yeah, psychiatrist to, to get all the records, which he then did the same uh, for whoever it was, the the Democratic presidential candidate, and uh, Muskie. Yes, we're we're talking about the the years of. Um, the Vietnam War, the Pentagon Papers, the Nixon um, enemies list, the plumbers. Dan Ellsberg was certainly on the enemies list. And I, I'm wondering, I bet you were on that list too, Dave, in one way or another. Well, Maybe my FBI record started when I was 15. Ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so so back to Daniel Ellsberg. You, you spoke to him. Tell Yeah, what did you talk about? Well, we were talking about the danger of nuclear war which he and I and many of us are deeply concerned about. And uh, especially at a time when uh, the U.S. and NATO have upped the ante significantly by sending tanks. That's for sure. Uh, and, of course, Russia will countermove in some way. And he, he feels conservatively that we have a one in six chance of... Uh, uh, of having a nuclear war, mm. a full-scale nuclear war in which nine billion people could live, could die. And, and when Daniel Ellsberg says this, Daniel Ellsberg was a, a military researcher who became a whistleblower, so he's not making stuff up. Researching military information is his life's yeah. work. He was an advisor to, uh, you know, McNamara was Secretary of Defense, and right. I mean, with the top level of government so he can he knows how they think <laughs> well for me 
as as somebody who only gradually came around to peace activism, I mean, I was not active in the 1990s, um, in the t- 2000s, I became active. Just to think of somebody with your life story speaking to Daniel Ellsberg, it's just amazing to think of the conversation. And it's privilege, It's a privilege to just be able to talk to you about <laughs> this. Um, I mean, do, do you feel when you speak to Daniel Ellsberg, are you still just two activists getting your work done? Is that what it still is we're deep friends we've been arrested many many times together (laughs) uh at the nevada nuclear testing site at the livermore nuclear weapons labs at conquer Mm -hmm. new weapons station where we were blocking trains and uh at the beginning of the iraq war blocking the financial district in san francisco lying down on market street (laughs) the main (laughs) uh well and then going to jail together so uh wow we're, we're we're deep friends and inspire each other. That is so wonderful. Let's take this all the way back. And I did read Daniel Ellsberg's book. It was wonderful, as well as reading your book. And I'd like to to take this back to the first chapters of your book. I was really interested to know that the faith known as um, friends, actually, I'm not even sure what to call it. We call it Quaker friends, um, was a part of your family heritage. And that this this is a religion that believes deeply in nonviolence. And it was interesting to me to hear that this had something to do not only with your own development as a as an anti-war activist, but also with your your father and your mother. Who were your parents who raised you with such wisdom? Um, and how did they get it? And love. <laughs> and love, nice. Um well, I feel uh, very lucky to have had uh, the parents that I have. Some people, I sometimes I say I've chose my parents well. But uh, <laughs> actually, I was not born a Quaker. My dad was a congregational pastor in the Midwest ah, okay. uh, during the Second World War and was supporting conscientious objectors in his congregation, <laughs> which wasn't, okay. wasn't always uh, uh, appreciated. Uh, I'm sure yes. by some of the congregation, and um, and actually asked him to move on <laughs> several times. So during my first five six years of life, we lived in th- three different towns, small small towns in Ohio, um, where Dad was uh, the minister. But uh, so um, that was an important uh, the example. Of my dad having something that he believed in and uh and i mean and felt very deeply uh was certainly an influence for me but then when i was uh 9 years old or i guess me 8 or 9 uh my dad was asked by the quakers to go to gaza uh mm. in palestine i was right after the first israeli palestinian war Mm-hmm. And there were you know thousands, hundreds of thousands of refugees. So he was asked to be in charge of a refugee camp for Quakers at okay. the UN. And so when I was just uh, eight or nine, uh, he uh, and it was considered too dangerous and expensive for our family to go. And so uh, he would write back to my brother and me every every week about going, mm-hmm. going through the battle lines between Israel and Palestine with uh, uh, 
truckloads of medical supplies and uh, tents and <laughs> and food. And uh, so here was my dad, who'd been a He'd been, I thought he was a great pastor. He talked about the, the Good Samaritan story and, you know, who is my neighbor? <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and here he was risking his life for some people yes. on the other side of the world. He'd never been out of the, you know, out of the country <laughs> before that. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was a very important example for me. Um, but then when he came back uh, after nine months, uh, he was invited to work with the American Friends Service Committee in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So, uh, excuse me, in Philadelphia. <laughs> okay. And uh, so uh, that's where I really, uh, I mean, that experience with my uh, with my dad was certainly very important, but that's where I got to meet A.J. Musty and Bard Rustin and uh, Ralph Abernathy and... Uh, so many really amazing people that were using their lives to try to create a more peaceful and just world uh, for everyone. And uh, so uh, that's a little, and then we lived in an interracial cooperative community outside of Philadelphia mm-hmm. uh, in an area where uh, blacks could not live. <laughs> I mean, really? it was in the suburbs. You mean you mean this was a small a small oasis of integration yes. in a larger yeah. part? Yes, where, got it. Where everybody is my neighbor. It's 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 well, not what a what a nice concept and how I only wish it was more of that. Yes, uh, and my mom was just a, a very uh, loving, caring person. Um, and what was this? Uh, 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 and and actually, in 1950, I think it was, uh, went to uh, Washington D.C. T- to uh, fast for a week in front of the White House wow. with, I think, A.J. Musty and Byron Rustin, uh, among others, uh, group, wow. uh, for a uh, to try to stop the universal military training, which was the beginning of the dra- the peacetime draft. Yes. So, you know, I mean, fasting for activism is such a um, extreme, that must have been distressing to you to see your mother go through that. And by the way, I know that this, of course, is a is a method of protesting that goes back to Gandhi and, yeah. of course, before that right. um, in India. But, um, was it distressing for you to have your mother fast for a cause? Uh I wouldn't say distressing. I, uh, I, I real here was, I'd had the example of my dad, but my mom also <laughs> was willing to sacrifice uh, nice. herself to try to just stop this militarization of our society. But I just wanted to share a brief example. I said she was a very loving person. In a, one of the towns where we lived in Ohio, we were right next to the railroad track. And this is when the hobos, the homeless people looking for jobs, were on the top of the trains, <laughs> right mm-hmm. to travel. Right. And our home became known, apparently word got around, that if you stopped at the little house right next to the church <laughs> in this town, 
uh, you could get a bowl of soup, get something to eat. And so obviously we didn't have uh, a lot (laughs) to eat ourselves, but you know, our, our home was always open to, uh, you know, homeless guys, you know, passing through, uh, and and that also certainly broadened my understanding of who my who my human family are. <laughs> wow, what a unique upbringing! Um, you know, I'm I'm curious. Do do you ever ask yourself the question if you had had not had this upbringing, would you have found anything like the same path in life? And who would you be today if you had not you know had this unusual exposure? Yeah. To to so much commitment to a cause? Uh, well, I think, yeah, the, the parents were certainly very important, but I, I think uh, moving to Philadelphia and, uh, and being a part of the more activist community uh, mm-hmm. and, and seeing the, the role models of A.J. Musty and Bard Rustin and so many others, uh, it gave me a, a different vision than if I would just grown up in rural Ohio, mm-hmm. uh, where, and, and especially if you're in rural Ohio and the only news you get <laughs> is how terrible yeah. the, the, the Russians are. <laughs> right. The yeah. communists are trying to take over. So <laughs> let me just say one other thing. Yeah. My mom and dad had never been arrested for civil disobedience. But when I was one of the organizers of Nuremberg Actions, where we were, during the, the 80s, we were blocking trains, mm-hmm. carrying bombs to uh, Central America. And mm-hmm. uh, we were arrested. I got arrested almost twice a week while, while we were there in Concord. But anyway, eventually my mom and dad came with a group of their friends uh, hmm. about 50 miles from uh from uh, Concord uh, each week to be a part of the vigil there. And then eventually they decided they wanted to get arrested. So, wow. <laughs> your parents there. So actually, I think there's a picture in my book of the three of us mm-hmm. just before we were uh, arrested, uh, blocking a train in Concord. So anyway, I, they had a good influence on me and I, th- I had a good influence on them, I guess, I think. And they were Love deeply it. appreciative of the life that I've, li- I've led. That is nice. Did you ever, I'm just curious, did you ever have to um, find a different path than they had in mind in terms of peace activism? And, you know, what I'm sort of thinking is generationally, you know, and like you, I'm a parent, generationally, every every generation must sort of define itself as as new in comparison to their parents. Um, did you ever have to find your own way of doing it that was different from what they believed in? Or was there really just, you know, complete harmony between their ideas of activism and your own? Well, I would say they were b- more uh, peacemakers. <laughs> mm. And I, I've been a... Uh, Nonviolent activist, activist, uh-huh. you know, and 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 going to jail and uh, yes, going to jail. Uh, I would say, you know, perhaps more radical. Uh, I mean, my folks were certainly radical 
compared with uh, most of the people in our society. But yes. uh, so I, I think my, uh, and I have actually taken our uh, concern for uh, peace and justice in the world onto the world scale, which my dad yes. was not so much, except in Gaza. And so... Uh, yeah, that's a big difference. That's a big difference. And yeah. I think, uh, I mean, Gandhi was died when I was just seven, seven or eight years old. Uh, and mm-hmm. I found something that my both my mom and dad had written <laughs> about when Gandhi was killed. Um, mm. But when I was just, I think. Uh, 15 years old or so for my birthday mom, my mom and dad gave me the book uh, Gandhi's book All Men Are Brothers mm-hmm. which uh, is just kind of selections from the whatever it is 26 volumes of Gandhi's writing which are yes, just so powerful so it, it was gifts like that uh, that were also certainly very important and in, in my shaping yes. my life. Oh, and the other thing I was going to say was, I think uh, my mom and dad certainly were practicing nonviolence, et cetera. But I think starting with the Montgomery bus boycott, nonviolent movements, uh, and and the power of nonviolent action, and actually seeing nonviolence as a way of life, uh, that, that that's that's. It's significant. It's very significant. So, so yes, the, yes. The, the actual uh, seeing nonviolence as a central part of your life and work, uh, I would say, has has been. Uh, I, I've developed that sense of myself. And you bring it to others. You have personally encountered Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. which to me is just you know I've met many many people I incredibly admire. But to meet somebody on such an epic world scale as Martin Luther King um, is, is, to me, is un, unimaginable. Can you just tell me what it was like um, to encounter him and to, you know, what, what can you just, you know, sort of help me feel a little of what that must have felt like? Well, when I met him, I think he was 27, 28 years old. <laughs> Wow. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, he didn't look that unusual. <laughs> he was a, mm-hmm. a, and I was whatever I was, 15. Um, but uh-huh. uh, Ralph Abernathy, who was Martin Luther King's right-hand man, uh, my dad organized a, a speaking tour for him in the northeast of the U.S. And I what you did for A.J. Musty and Byard and many others, uh, from, mm-hmm. you know, actually peacemakers from around the world. And often he would bring them to our home uh, afterward. So uh, Ralph uh, came, came to our home after their speaking tour and said our home was the first uh, white home he'd ever slept in. Mm-hmm. Which, no. Wow. But... It, that's a real honor. I mean, it's a disgrace for the country and the society, but it's an honor for your right. home. But at any rate, uh, he, and he actually took an interest in my brother Paul and me. And uh, he said to my dad, he says, why don't, 
Ray, why don't you bring uh, the boys to Montgomery? This is during the Montgomery bus boycott. And that's, mm -hmm. and so we did in spring vacation of 1956. Uh, Amazing. And uh, so uh, on the way down there, we stayed at Koinonia, which is an interracial uh, community in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And I slept in a bed where the week before, uh, white racists had shot through the through the wall of the wow. house. So a foot above me, <laughs> where mm -hmm. I was sleeping, was a bullet hole. So that introduced introduced me to uh, <laughs> what racism, uh, the extent that yes. racists were willing to go to to challenge and you know the 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 uh, people that were that were challenging segregation. But anyway, so then we we drove on to uh, Montgomery, and uh, Ralph, you know, greeted us and took us around town. And among other things, we saw black African American churches that had been bombed. Mm -hmm. uh, we we saw thousands of African Americans walking <laughs> to work. Yeah. Because the buses, because they were boycotting buses. Rather than ride the buses on a segregated basis. And uh, nobody was talking about bombing the uh, white churches <laughs> to get back to people. <laughs> right. And, you know, and King and others were talking about, you know, the struggle has to be a nonviolent struggle. And the white people are also our brothers and sisters. But uh, anyway, we went to a Montgomery Improvement Association meeting, which was the pastors uh, of many of the churches, including one white pastor. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Ralph uh, introduced us to everyone and said, uh, this, these are young boys come down here from the north to learn about our struggle. And Mm -hmm. uh, was just very human and was uh, a, a part of this community of people that were leading the struggle, which was uh, yes. very inspiring. It was certainly the first time that I had experienced nonviolence, active nonviolent struggle uh, against an injustice. Uh, as So it was not only meeting King, it was seeing, you know, whatever it was, tens of thousands of people uh, actively engaged for over a year uh, in non-violently challenging these, this injustice. When you remember back, was was everybody on the same page in terms of non-violence, in terms of what the meaning of the struggle was? Was there a... Uh, was there a need to sort of explain the philosophy to all of those who were involved, which I imagine were mostly people who lived there in Montgomery, mm -hmm. um, as well as people like you who had traveled there? Was there a need to explain and to bring people to an understanding of nonviolence? Or was it just there, that understanding? Well, the black community was, uh, in addition to their Sunday morning <laughs> going to church, uh, right. would have these, uh, I forget what they called them, but 
they would have the the campaign gatherings every week, once a week, where they would sing freedom songs, and you know King would get up <laughs> and talk, and Ralph and mm-hmm. others, and and it was really a uh, uh, a pep rally <laughs> in some way. Wow. Yeah, you know, we're important. We're involved in a world, you know, important struggle for the whole world to to watch, and and that sure was and true. Violence uh, is our is our is our is our weapon. It's not hatred. It's not getting back at these white racists that don't care about us. Yeah, and actually, Bayard Russian, as I'm sure some of the people listening know, played a very important role. And help and helping mm-hmm. King uh, come to understand deep, deepen his understanding of 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 nonviolence and, and strategy, good strategy. So, so there was sort of a strategy team, or a, you know, a, like a few people who were who were. Um, well, that that was keeping keeping that at the yeah. core, and that yeah. But so it it became uh, it was, and, and then that that's. Uh, went on to the uh, sit-ins and the freedom rides and uh, and the the whole civil rights struggle, freedom struggle of the '60s. Uh, it was an, an accepted part of of that whole movement that our mm-hmm. our weapon is nonviolence, and uh, right, and we're willing to to get arrested. We're willing to. Uh, <laughs> Being buses that get bombed and beaten up, and you know, uh, I mean, people have seen the, the the march in Selma, you know, where the police and okay. on the horses just charge people, yeah. and and people, people, people maintain that yeah. nonviolent discipline and spirit, uh, and I think that gave life to the to the movement. Yes. So nonviolence mm-hmm. wasn't just kind of a terminology we can read about in Gandhi or whatever. It was it was really a uh, powerful means of struggle. It sure is. And today, I think it is no less at the core of everything we do. And, you know, I wonder how, how often peace activists who are working today of, you know, various generations and places of the world um, you know, sort of recharge the, themselves with the inspiration f- from the early nonviolent movements, which which had to f- sort of forge this path. Um, to me, there is there is no greater. You know, I, I don't like to really think in terms of heroes or idols. That's you know, I try. I sort of think everybody's a human being, but there's no greater person in the history of the United States than Martin Luther King, as far as I know, and no greater event than the Montgomery bus boycott. Um, yeah. And even with sense of history at the time, I bet it was hard to to grasp just how important that protest movement was. I, I knew it was very important for me personally, <laughs> but then as it grew and the students started sitting in at segregated lunch counters and then... Uh, yeah, and then later the freedom rides and the the voting rights campaign, etc. And it, mm-hmm. it was movement after movement where people were actually yes. out in the streets and put often putting their lives on the line. And mm-hmm. there was 
mutual support for each other. People were really building community. Music played a very important role. That's interesting to hear. (laughs) Lifted the spirits. and We shall overcome was not just words. (laughs) It was, it was, it was faith and trust that, that that can happen. Well, David, you know, every podcast episode, I put in a piece of music, and I think you just gave me a good <laughs> idea for, for what I can use for this one. Um, the last time I remember singing that song in a large group was in, um, I think it was Limerick, Ireland, at the World Beyond mm. War 2019 conference when we, we had, I, I would guess it was about 100 people in the room, and we had just ended our our event and everybody was clapping and then two folks from the crowd i believe they were from germany just started singing we shall overcome you know nobody gave them permission to and then the whole room (laughs) burst into you know that was four years ago so we're still singing that song um we haven't overcome yet though have we no not not we haven't overcome war so let's so, you know, the next, I, I do want to, of course, we can't cover your whole book. I think readers would enjoy reading your book, but your your next chapters are no less amazing. You went to Cuba in the, really in, you know, in the midst of its revolution. It was right? six months after the revolution. <laughs> Incredible, David. Incredible that, you know. <laughs> managed to go there. Okay. And can you just, and you know, of course, again, this is in your book and our purpose isn't to reproduce your book, but just tell us a little about what that meant to you as well as the Berlin, you know, to be in Berlin before and after the building of the Berlin wall, which was an incredible, and I, again, I just want to make sure for people listening to this who might not have the same historical background the Cuba crisis in the early 60s and the Berlin crisis in the early 60s were both the result of the collision between, you know, so-called communism and so-called capitalism in Europe, which was left a, you know, smoldering wreck from World War II. This struggle was how paranoid people were about communism, um, the legacy of Nazism and fascism, which had left Europe such a wreck, all of this, you were right in the middle of that in both Cuba and Berlin. Cuba, I mean, this was actually before Cuba was really seen as the enemy. (laughs) That was just six months after the revolution. So the revolution was not a communist, you know, today in retrospect, we think of the Cuban revolution as a communist revolution. I I disagree with that whole business. Uh, uh, Gotcha. the Communist Party was was illegal for the first year and a half or so hmm. of that revolution after they were successful. And uh, Fidel actually came to Washington to ask for economic assistance to help them yes. make some of the social reforms they wanted to make. And we said, no, no way. And, you know, so a year, yeah. year yeah. a year and a half later or so, he, he went to the Soviet Union and said, will you help us? And uh, so anyway. Yes, I, yes. And by the way, that is, such, that is, of course, an echo of what Ho Chi Minh yeah. did as a young man, you know, many, many decades before when he literally approached Woodrow yeah. Wilson. I believe he was a waiter in a Paris yeah. restaurant <laughs> and said, well, you know, we're trying to rescue our country, Vietnam, from corrupt, you know, criminal leadership. Will the USA help us? And the USA said no. And so the Viet- Vietnam also looked towards Russia. So uh, I actually, what woke up, what was most 
significant. And I was in the eastern end of the island in a small village mm -hmm. that Bautista, the dictator uh, before uh, the revolution, had actually destroyed the whole village. All the homes were were were, uh, oh my God. and it was because okay. they had been supportive of the revolution. Uh, and uh, were were there murders? I mean, were people murdered in these, or was it a matter I, I think of some like of the people had died? Police, all the all the homes had been destroyed, and uh, okay. it was a message to the Cuban people: don't <laughs> listen. You know, follow me. Don't, don't, don't yes. follow these <laughs> Castro people. Uh, and most of the people had three months of work a year cutting uh, sugarcane, and uh, they were you know barely surviving. But they were looking forward to the you know land reform, <laughs> where they could have some land and grow enough food mm -hmm. for their families. But I went up on a hill with a young boy from the village. And here was a golden roof, you know, <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the background. Wow. And I said, well, what is that? He says, well, that's the American landowner. Hmm. You know, and, and it just yeah. it woke me up about this tremendous inequality in the world and, and, and how Americans <laughs> were kind of using these people to increase their own wealth. And, and, mm -hmm. So it it helped helped open up my understanding of the, this world we're living in, and how how unjust and and, and criminal it is. But uh, Berlin, yeah. I uh, was there for a year, studying. This is during the Berlin crisis, where the U.S. and the Soviet Union were threatening nuclear war over Berlin. Yes. And I was studying in uh, East Berlin and West Berlin uh, just to try to get to understand. I mean, I went there because I I knew we're threatening nuclear war, and I, I wanted to get to know our better understanding. Of what in the world? Why are we <laughs> threatening nuclear war? Yes. And uh, I had studied. And this was before. This was before, before there was a wall. wall. So you yeah, could walk. Could walk from one from East Berlin to West Berlin yes. and back. Okay. I, and bicycled. I actually bicycled. Uh, mm. But uh, and you could walk, of course. But so in the East Berlin, uh, I went to you know some of the classes and heard a lot of communist propaganda, and I would challenge that, and they would call me a capitalist warmonger. Uh, not not right. the students, but the you know the professors, and then I. I'd come back to West mm -hmm. Berlin, the Free University, and heard a lot of anti-communist propaganda, and I challenged that, and they called me a communist conspirator. And of course, <laughs> the the newspapers on both sides, you know, were totally one-sided in the in their mm -hmm. their uh, talking about what the, what was happening in the world, <laughs> what was happening in Berlin, and yes. it was. Yes, you know, yes. We're the good guys and they're the bad guys. Of course, always we're the good guys, and, always. You know, <laughs> if we have to threaten nuclear war to to keep the bad guys from <laughs> getting the upper hand, we're going to do that. And I got students from east and west together to just try to, you know, listen to one another and but then from Berlin, I, I heard you could go camping in the Soviet Union. 
which then mm-hmm. uh, I took in, in the early 60s, I took three groups of American students to uh, Russia just to get to know the people. <laughs> you know? This is another chapter in your book. I just, you know, I, before you continue, I want to mention how relevant this is to horrible stuff that's going on today. Many of the place names you mention yeah. in your travels are the place names we hear as battle sites like Kharkov, Kiev, yeah. um, obviously, Russia and Ukraine are fighting a new global proxy war. <laughs> um, and um, the the echoes from your book to today, it was, it's ama- it was amazing to me in the past few days <laughs> to be rereading this book and, and see these names. Kharkov, there it is. Um, so, and also it's worth mentioning that when you refer to the Soviet Union, at that time, the Soviet Union incorporated all of what is now yeah, Ukraine. Yeah. How has it been to see these, these places in crisis and divided so many years ago and see it still again today? It seems like our, our government leaders haven't learned very much. <laughs> nope. I, I mean, we're nope. still making the stupid mistakes we made. In 1961. Yeah. That's uh, for sure. And, and I think our government leaders are wealthier today than they were then, so maybe they've learned how to make more yeah. money out of war. And of course, <laughs> we're getting more billionaires and trillionaires, uh, you know, that are yeah. <laughs> making the weapons. Um, but it, it breaks my heart to see uh, how the American people have been propagandized. In, That's for in sure. the feeling, somehow, not only is it worth, you know, what is it, $100 billion that we've put into, you know, the, supporting the war in Ukraine, uh, while we <laughs> while we say no to, you know, funds for health care and housing and uh, education and <laughs> raising yeah student debt and all that yes. stuff that it's much more important to fight this war um but uh and, and i think the propaganda is very similar in russia you know saying this is a yes. life and death struggle and i think what americans don't understand is and we heard it over and over and over again in russia was uh we we uh the Soviet Union, the Soviet people lost over 20 million lives. And I think in, in World, World War II. And we weren't prepared. So we've got, we've, we've got to be militarily prepared to make sure uh, that that doesn't happen again. And so when NATO, uh, the U.S. and Europe had promised not to go one inch eastward, we promised to Gorbachev. And now, right. and now NATO is on Russia's borders with American military bases and fighter planes and, and uh, missile sites. And NATO invites uh, Ukraine to join NATO. I, I think we, if we could put each other in the other person's shoes, when the Soviet Union put missiles in Cuba, the American, you know, mm-hmm. the, the American people and the American government you know, had a fit. We were ready to start, nu- you know, a nuclear war. Right. World, World War, III War III was the fear. Because, because this is 90 miles off the U.S. shore. And uh, right. this is our territory. 
Yes, this is what Ukraine yeah. is to Russia. By us, it, it seems to me that U.S. European NATO leadership has been reckless and greedy in pushing profit motives involving the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, involving weapon cells, you know, and involving basically trade, world trade, um, the balance of world trade, that this began as economic motives that turned into an economic war that turned into an actual war. And um, the idea that people are being slaughtered in Ukraine on both sides are being slaughtered, people who did not want to join military forces but are being forced to, for the benefit of economic motives. And it's anybody who looks into the history of the Russia-Ukraine conflict since 2014 will see that Nord Stream 2 and these types of motivations on a geopolitical scale are translating into a war that people are asked to buy into and believe in. People often ask, what is World Beyond War's message about the Ukraine war? What do we believe? Obviously, we believe both sides should stop um, yeah. warmongering. And we what we believe in is a ceasefire and a negotiation process, which is what has basically stopped mm-hmm. most yeah. wars from happening. There is no other way to stop a war other than ceasefire and negotiation. Is that also where you're at? In terms of what are what what are we saying you know, we want uh, to have, and as a part of the negotiation, we need to try to understand what are the vital concerns of the other side. Put ourselves right. in their shoes, and how would we feel <laughs> if the Soviet Union had uh, troops and military bases and tanks, you know, on the borders of 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 Canada and Mexico, <laughs> but say this is for peaceful purposes. We just want to be sure that the United States doesn't, you know, get aggressive and you know invade us again. You would you would think that if Na- people in NATO and the United States are are government leaders had really looked at this ahead of time and said, well, you know, it's understandable that R- Russia does not want Ukraine a part of NATO. <laughs> and the Ukraine yeah. should be neutral. Like given that NATO is a, is a military alliance targeted against Russia, yes, it's understandable that yeah. they don't want their former neighbor and ally to become their enemy. Yes, that's yeah. understandable. So uh, anyway, I think we have to we have to go to the negotiation table. Both sides have to go to the negotiation table, saying the horrors of this war have to cease. And we have to listen to each other and find some middle ground where as many of the concerns of both sides can be met. And at the moment, both Russia and Ukraine are out for victory. And I'm afraid the U.S. is in the same boat. I think so, too. I also think um, here in the United States, you know, obviously we are not in the maelstrom there. We're not the ones who are suffering the most, but it seems to me here in the United States, there are many people who think that victory over Russia and Ukraine will somehow be curative for our many, many problems here in the United States. And I got to say that is one of the most delusional and dangerous ideas is that we can fix our very serious social problems here in the United States by helping Ukraine win a war against Russia. That's that's really, I feel, 
you know, the mindset that makes many people so pro-war in the United States from our very safe distance. Well, I, I, I agree with that 100%. And I would say um, we are addicted to this mentality that yes. military power getting more and more nuclear, getting more and more sophisticated weapons and putting another, what, over a trillion dollars into <laughs> modernizing our nuclear weapons and military bases all around the world. That's the way to get security. And what, what, what Gorbachev, who is one of the greatest <laughs> political leaders I think the world has seen, talked about a common European home where everybody can feel secure. Well, what a why concept. not? <laughs> yeah, why not? How about a common earth home? Yeah. I mean, this is what the people want. So, well, I, yeah. I love the I quote I, I by Eisenhower. Or he has mm-hmm. you know, different good quotes. But uh, I, I, I would like to believe that the people of the world want peace so much that governments will have to get out of the way and let them have it. Well, <laughs> you know. Wow. Yeah. Eisenhower said that? He yeah. said a lot of good stuff for a general. And, and he knew <laughs> what war was. <laughs> he sure did. Yes. By the way, I take it you admire Gorbachev, um, and I think I do too. A uh, you know complicated legacy, but I'm I'm just curious to hear that um, as somebody who who has been close to all of it. So it, you know, did you feel when the Berlin Wall fell? Mm-hmm. You know, which must have echoed a moment in your own personal life when the Berlin Wall fell, I guess it was 20, 20, nearly 30 years after it went up. Did you, uh, did you feel there was actual hope that the world was wising up and that what Eisenhower said, that the people's wish for peace could finally come true all over the world? Or, or were you not that optimistic? No, I felt that, that was a very, very hopeful sign. And, and the, the Soviet Union making the decision not to send in troops to uh, yes. protect that government that was an ally <laughs> in the Warsaw Pact, uh, not to do what they'd done in Czechoslovakia. You talk about the, the Soviet Union yeah. allowing yeah. East Berlin, East Germany, and, and, to go its and own Jeff way. Has yeah. said the U.S., or the, excuse me, the Soviet Union, uh, is no longer going to, I forget his words, but is never, no longer going to send troops to any of the other uh, Warsaw Pact countries to protect the governments. It's real up to, up to them. To... Can you imagine if the United States would make a pledge like that, that we will stop sending troops to meddle in other countries? Well, we a lot of businesses would go out of business here. but, but And I feel... I feel a natural solution to the whole Ukraine crisis is to have internationally supervised elections in Ukraine, in Crimea, mm-hmm. and in the Donbas. And, and, and let the people decide, do we want to be a part of Russia? Do we want to be a part of Ukraine? Do we want to be a neutral country? But, I mean, that yep. is as democratic as you can imagine. And why not... Why not go that path instead of, well, let's uh, kill some more people. <laughs> Maybe we'll resolve this yeah. conflict. 
David, I would love to ask you, and here I'm, I'm, you know, this has been a really amazing discussion and I'm so glad we're having this conversation. This is an idea that I sometimes bring up on this podcast and it's sort of my own philosophy. I, I believe that nationhood as a whole is an archaic concept. Um, and, you know, you say, let the people in Donbass and Crimea decide what nation they want to belong to. Do we, do we really in, in with, with, the potential of humans to to do better than we've done in the past. Do we really need to have this archaic concept of nationhood at all? And and I don't. I have no idea what your answer to that question is. Some peace activists think nationhood is a no. part of the future. I don't. What do no, you? No, I mean the world is my country, <laughs> and I, yeah. I consider yes. myself a world yes. citizen. And I am. I am a world citizen. I have a a card. There's. I mean, as you may know, there's uh, Arthur Cadigan's yes, uh, uh, yes, uh, and mm-hmm. passport. I, I meant to say, um, there's a world citizen passport. So I, I think certainly people in different parts of the world can speak different languages and they'll have different cultures. But uh, why have nation states where people are, you know, each one sets up their own army and. <laughs> Yeah. And propaganda and machine to make make sure people know yeah. that they are superior to other people and all that stuff. Why? What's the point? And what's the point of enduring the damage that it does? Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. And the anti-war movement has has room for people who do believe in nations mm-hmm. as well as people who don't. But I personally think it would be great if people who can see past this archaic concept would speak up more about that because things have changed so much in human society. I mean, the concept of nations is already so different than it was a hundred years ago or 200 years ago. And yet, you know, people who tend to be pro-war and pro-status quo, let's just keep doing what we're doing, you know, seem to think that, that the United States of America must stand as the center of our existence, um, even though we are a violent force all over the world, meddling in other countries. Um, and, and I keep, keep hearing where the, just want- where the uh, whatever they call it, the the uh, the most mo- the best democracy in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they keep telling us that that's what they are—the best democracy in the world. The people know that. The people know it's bullshit. Yeah. Ah, we're laughing, David, but I think we're both well, crying and, inside a little and, bit. And I feel, and maybe you want to talk about this later, but uh, when we are on the verge of uh, of a nuclear war that uh, could yes. kill everybody. I mean, to me, All of us, any yeah. there's no reason in the world that could justify risking uh, the death of civilization. Uh, damn right. Yeah, even the lines on the map in Crimea are not worth right. risking every single human being yeah. from now to and, the future. And uh, so why aren't millions of us out in the street? I, I, yeah, in 1982, why? yeah, when there was a million people in in New York and there were a million people in London and 
Berlin and all over the world, San Francisco. That, that's what we have to do again. I mean, at the at the universities, we they would have uh, teach-ins, you know, where people could really learn the specifics of what was going on, and then, you know, there'd be d- massive demonstrations. And, well, so I, I guess what I'm hearing you say, and I certainly agree, is that maybe being so close to nuclear annihilation, complete, you know, annihilation of, of the human race and more, um, maybe being so close will finally, you know, scare some sense into more people and that we can get out and protest and vote and do whatever you know, remove and replace most governments in the world that are so corrupt. You know, that is the hope. Yeah. Is is that right? And, you know, if if every person listening to this podcast or every person that has signed the World Beyond War pledge were to, in their church or synagogue or labor union or school or university, began speaking out and organizing and say, we have to stop this madness. There would be hope, and, and without, yes. without it, or take us over the cliff, and that's that's not yeah. an alternative. We certainly seem lemming-like in our march to war in in Europe, in our march and, to and World China. War III in Europe, I, and China. Thank you. We how could we have spoken an hour without mentioning I mean, China? The U.S. and Russia and China all seem willing to risk nuclear war. Yes, for trade advantage, for again an economic war. That spills over into well, actual and, war. and for what per- people perceive as their their national interests. What do you mean by that? Well, do you mean um, no? I, well, I'm thinking or... more of Russia feeling okay. for security reasons <laughs> they don't want U.S. Uh, tanks and and missiles, et cetera, on their border. Yeah, you know, historically, Taiwan was a part of China, and. Uh, over that issue, <laughs> the U.S. and China are ready to go to nuclear war. And it's going to be a miracle if it doesn't Absolutely. happen in two years, I'd say. Well, I, I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be a miracle. Those odds aren't great. I hope our, geez, you know, to hear you say that is, is frightening. And by the way, I do want to make it clear that when I speak of an economic war that turns into an actual war, I'm talking about economic motives on the United States, European, you know, global, global economic powers of the West for, you know, I, I, hear so much about the trade imbalance between the United States and China. And it really seems clear to me that that um, the Ukraine war is in a way a rehearsal mm. for the China war. And that's so, so freaking terrifying. Um, but it's, it's, you know, one thing I do in my capacity as director of technology at World Beyond War is I, I, I listen to military podcasts from military personnel. I read up on the things they are talking about when they don't know that anti-war activists are, are listening. And the sensibility is very prominent when military folks in the United States speak to each other, that the Ukraine war is a great rehearsal for the war we, we plan to start with China. Yeah. And, and our aircraft Absolutely carriers terrifying. and fighter jets are already there. And we're making military alliances yep. with... <laughs> Japan, 
and by the I don't think the United States has a plan. I, I think I think we are in we are misguided and misled and we are stumbling into this. So it might be that the nuclear war results from the Russia Ukraine war. We never even get to the China war that they're so eager for. <laughs> what the people need to realize, obviously, is we have a choice. Do we allow our government to go this yes. <laughs> this horrendous path that they're they're currently on? We are currently on, or do we say enough? Yes, it's got to stop over our dead bodies, so to speak. <laughs> As Brian yes. Wilson said, and, blocking the train carrying munitions to Central America over mm-hmm. my dead body. So they ran over him. But in, but instead mm-hmm. of stopping right. that movement of 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 those of us that were trying to to block munitions going to Central America, we blocked every train for two and a half years. Well, that's mm-hmm. an example. I think uh, we've got to get in the way. <laughs> and if, yeah, if partly we've got to get in the way, yes. You know, and, and getting our, our universities and church funds that are divested from any of the military companies. Uh, it's if we live near a military base, <laughs> stopping those uh, or, or, or the tanks that we're going to send over there. And these American tanks, mm-hmm. I understand, won't get there for a year. So we're, we're, we're planning for a long-term yeah. war. <laughs> so, yes. but at any rate, uh-huh. uh, wherever we live, you know, sitting in our congressional office until the congressperson makes a commitment to, you know, to stop this madness. Right. And mm-hmm. that might mean that, going to jail. It. it might mean, yeah. <laughs> but as I've found out, going to jail is, is is much easier, especially if you do it with other people, than than sitting back mm-hmm. in your home and crying <laughs> about the state of the world. Damn right, David. I'm going to quote you: "Going to jail is better than going to jail with the right people is better than sitting at home crying." That's a great quote from this podcast. Um, and maybe we can, you know, I think I'd like to leave it. You've been talking, we've been talking for over an hour um, and um, covered so much. I want to leave it with that message of hope that harkens back to to you as a young man in, in Montgomery. And you saw a successful movement that really changed the world. And that's what we need again right now. I'd like to just mention two other things. One is, uh, I think, the work by Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan, where they have shown that Mm nonviolent movements are more effective than than violent movements, should give us great courage. And the fact that people all over the world are using building nonviolent movements. Mm -hmm. You're talking about the book, Why Civil Resistance Works. Yeah. By the way, I'm happy to say that that title and those authors have been mentioned on the podcast many times. Maybe eventually I'll get one of them to, to be well, on the podcast. that should be possible. Um, but yes. But anyway, I, I think that is a great big plus now. And, and, and just people are understanding that, mm-hmm. that nonviolent struggle is, uh, and nonviolent uh, movements are more effective than violent movements. The other is to say around the whole nuclear issue. When I was in high school, I saw the film Children of the A-Bomb. 
And then there were two mm -hmm. Hiroshima maidens, uh, women, young women who were in Hiroshima at the time of the bombing, and their faces were uh, all burned mm -hmm. and disfigured. Disfig and they had yeah. come to get some, you know, tre treatment. Um, but uh, so after this film, these two women said, "We of Hiroshima." want to make sure that what we have suffered, uh, nobody else in the world ever has to suffer. A and I thought, Amen. And that was so powerful for me that uh, these, th these, these people, instead of saying, oh, we're, we're, we're going to get the bomb and we're going to bomb the United States. <laughs> they they totally yeah. destroyed our family or killed our family members and destroyed our city. Uh, mm. So it really challenged me, you know, what am I willing to do to try to stop this? And then in 1958, where four Quakers decided to sail the Golden Roll, the, the boat, the sailboat into the uh, nuclear testing area. And each one of them wrote mm -hmm. a statement why they're willing to risk their lives. Because if they'd gotten in there and been underneath it, when the bombs fell, they'd been all over. But at right. any rate, uh, they each wrote about why they're willing to risk their lives to stop this madness. And uh, that, that, that really uh, was a powerful example for me. Uh, yeah. What am I willing to do <laughs> to, to stop? Stop right. this madness. That is yeah. the challenge that each of us must face. The past doesn't matter. It's the right. it's what are we going to do today? Because the future is wide open. Which way will it go? Nuclear disaster? And then after after sanity? the nuclear war starts, <laughs> it's too late. So, yeah. so now is the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. Well, David, um, okay. I think we should wrap it up. You have brought so much inspiration to me and I'm sure to our listeners. And I'm so glad that we ended this with talking about right now, the challenge that we are all facing right now. What are we willing to do? What are we willing to suffer? What are we willing to give? How are we going to block this? How are we going to put ourselves okay, in the way? And, and in terms of my book, uh, Waging Peace, Global Adventures of a Lifelong Activist, it's available from bookstores or uh, Amazon, but it's also available mm -hmm. as an um, audiobook. And I will send you the link uh, if you want. Cool. I'll you put it in the show notes. Exactly. Absolutely. Yes. By the way, I love audiobooks. I, I do more audiobooks than um, than regular. So, yeah, great. Awesome, David. Thank you so much for being here. And again, it's so special that even while having been dealing with a health crisis for a couple of years, where your heart is, is the world's crisis, not your own. Um, and that means thank so you. much. So thank you. Keep up the good work. We will. Bye -bye. We will. Okay. Thank you, David.
Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.